Hello and welcome to another brand new episode of Invasion of the Podcasters. Along with myself, we have Simon. Hello guys, Simon here. Since we look at streaming services, I am going to delve into some of the more obscure ones. For example, tonight I'm going to look at Mubi, I'm going to look at BFI Player and also Arrow Player. Along with Simon and myself, we also have Scott as usual. Scott here, hi guys. Simon, we look at the more obscure streaming services while I deal with the more mainstream kind. So on this episode, I'm primarily um, picking from Amazon Prime, and then a couple from Disney Plus, and I also deal with Netflix, but that doesn't have any appearances tonight. Do you mention as well there's going to be something from uh, actual cinema as well tonight as well, Scott? Was that right? Oh, yes. It's been so long since uh, we've really um, had a chance to go to the cinema that I'd forgotten, almost. <laughs> but yes, I have, I've been to the cinema and have something I've watched in person to talk about tonight. You watched some television in the cinema. It it should have been television. But, uh, I'll 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 add on to it in a bit. <laughs> and uh, as well as us usual three podcasters, we have again uh, we our special guest Laura. Good evening, everyone. I'll be rifling through the Radio Times to give you a heads up as to what's to come in the week ahead. Ooh, very bougie. I'm old school. <laughs> And as well as myself introducing myself, I'm Grim, of course, I'm your host, and also I look after uh, the likes of free-to-air streaming, such as iPlayer and All4, uh, stuff that you can watch from telly, basically. Each episode, we like to kick off with an item of news, and uh, this is the one that's called Simon's Eye, uh, news about the new film uh, Memoria, so uh, over to you, Simon. Yeah, this isn't something that's probably going to affect us over here in any case. I just thought it was quite an interesting case study about, you know, filmmakers choosing to put more importance on cinema releases more than anything else. So, a bit of background here. Memoria is the new film by Apichat Pong Where's the Cool, a Thai filmmaker who has just made his English language debut with Memoria, set in Colombia, Tilda Swinton plays a woman who is just hearing noises all the time, like somebody is banging on a roof over her head. Now, I'm going to go and see this on Sunday. The Tyneside Cinema are hosting the London Film Festival screening of it, at least for the North East, so I'm very excited for it. But the thing is, with the release strategy in America by the distributor over there, Neon, it's going to be, and I quote, a deliberate and methodical approach, moving from city to city, theatre to theatre, week by week, playing in front of only one solitary audience at any given time. This means it'll basically never stop being in cinemas, or it has an indefinite ending, basically, and the film will only play in theatres and not become available on DVD, on demand, or streaming platforms. Movie have bought the rights to it internationally, so of course it would be a bit rubbish if Movie didn't end up streaming it in the end, but... What a strange way of releasing it. I think it's just because, you know, the the soundscape of the film is meant to be, uh, you know, very, very sort of quiet and brooding. And I think the subtleties of that might be lost in a home viewing setting. But there's also been some, not disgust, but sort of like um, discussions, let's say, about uh, the elitist nature of this release strategy, you know to view it as like an art exhibition rather than an actual film. So I don't really have an opinion on it either way. I think I see some pros and cons to it. What do you guys think? 
Ah, well, I think that early days of cinema, that's how cinema travelled. It was like there was one reel of film and it travelled from town to town. So I think it harks back to that. I, to be honest, I'll hold my hands up and say I don't know much about the film itself. So I wonder if the film plays to historic cinema or not. Or otherwise, is it just a gimmick? Who knows? So um, I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on the film itself and if the uh, the idea of distribution links in with what the film is possibly about. But um, mm-hmm. yeah, in, I mean, nowadays with everything through streaming, everything available, you say it's not going to be available on home streaming in America or DVD. It'll end up getting out there somehow. It's, somehow. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, it'd be interesting. Good experiment. And let's see what happens with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it is... It does feel like a publicity stunt, really. I mean, I mean, that's what film marketing is, really, isn't it? You need to, you need to get publicity for your films, but it's just seemed like quite yeah. an extreme version of that. I think it's definitely going to put bums in seats. You know what I mean? Because people who really want to see Memoria will go and see Memoria because they're like, "Oh man, I'm not going to be able to see it ever again." Yeah, you know, it'll just kind of go off into the ether, and that'll that'll be. I mean, it. I find it hard to believe that they'll never release it on streaming or. Or uh, physical media in any way that seems a bit unlikely, mm-hmm. uh, really. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a good ploy to get people in. I think, as you say, it will get people in. Um, so I, I suppose we'll have to um, wait until twenty twenty seven to see it in Gateshead. I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I say bring it. I'm very much in favour. If I think of all of the things with amazing sound design that I would lose a limb to see in a cinema. You know, a lot of David Lynch's work. And I remember when a field in England had that simultaneous distribution, um, mm. Channel 4, DVD and cinema release the same day. Rhys Shearsmith was saying to people on Twitter, well, see it however you like, but I would recommend the cinema purely for the sound. And those mm-hmm. of us that know the film will know the scene in particular I'm thinking of. Just not quite the same on a TV screen, is it? Not really, no. I've... I think I've seen it about three times now, and every single viewing's been at home. Um, did you see it in the cinema originally? I did. We watched Ooh. it on the Friday night, and I fell asleep. So I went into the Tyneside on the Wednesday <laughs> after, um, one o'clock in the afternoon in the Electra screen, and you know, my I had to peel my jaw off the floor. Just <laughs> beautiful, stunning. Hell of a film. But yeah, we'll see what happens with Memoria. I'm actually intending on doing a little roundup of the London Film Festival films um, that have been showing up in the Tyneside. Um, I've already seen The Souvenir Part 2, and I went to see Teton the other day, which was crazy. But uh, I'll t- <laughs> I'll discuss more about how and why it's crazy um, further on down the line. Well, we'll uh, pick up our sections now. So it's uh, over to Scott um, for uh, for your areas. So take it away. Yeah, so, so I'll uh, begin with the cinema visit I almost forgot about in the introduction. Sorry that I did forget about and I was reminded about. But this is uh, this is The Many Saints of Newark, the Sopranos film, the, f- the first uh, piece of media that's uh, come subsequently to the iconic original series. As was sort of alluded to, this is really a television thing and... I do believe a limited series or some such would have worked a lot better. I think it does feel like an episode of The Sopranos, though not a very good one. It, it just feels like it's very rushed, uh, packing a lot into a two-hour runtime. 
throughout the series you heard about uh, Tony Soprano and how his his uncle was uh, massively influential to his um, introduction to the mafia world, but this film completely ignores that in a way. It paints their relationship as just a bit loose, really, not as close as it was made out to be. Without, without spoiling it for people who might want to see it, I don't know who they'd be, really, uh, based on the reviews it's had. Um, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, if... I'm going to see it eventually once I finish The Sopranos, but I'm only three episodes in. What I would so... say is you must watch the series first. Yeah. Watching this on its own would have no value. It doesn't work as a um, as a mob film. You've not got something in the probably good in the good category like Donny Brasco, something that's not like top top. Even that'll be vastly superior to this. So yeah, if you haven't seen the series, don't bother. We've got Michael Gandolfini, the late great James Gandolfini's son, who looks obviously sons look like dads quite often, but uh, the likeness is unbelievable. And I think mm. that could serve a future series that there will be, I, w- I would imagine. Hopefully they'll learn from this film and um, decide that limited series are better for this. But he's going to be fantastic in the role as his dad. And it's definitely going to be very emotional to see him when he's more at the age his dad was in the original series. Um, it's directed by Alan Taylor, who, was, who did one of the Thor films. I can't remember which. Um, but he's, he's a very experienced uh, television director. And that may be a part of uh, the problem because he's TV director's going uh, direct TV TV episode really. I think it's in Mad Men and Homicide Life in the Street and Oz maybe mm-hmm. things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you've got Alessandro Nivola who's most famous for uh, for his performance in Goal as Gavin Harris, the midfielder. Um, <laughs> he's uh, hey man, he's Nicholas Cage's brother and face. I off, was going to say which one is he? Uh, is he Castor or Pollux? I forget, but I always Pollux. snigger. He's Pollux. <laughs> yeah, he's he's okay in this. He's not great, and uh, Leslie Odom Jr. is is uh, it's quite good as a black gangster in this. As someone who's so, obviously a time of racial tension, there were uh, riots in Newark and other parts of America due to the uh, continuing mistreatment of uh, African Americans, even after all the legislation that come into place in that decade. Um, but he's he's great here, and also really odd in a in an odd performance, really. Uh, but uh, yeah, I guess that's that's the really order of of today, really. Um, <laughs> but there we go. I'm not going to get it too too much further than that. This isn't the many scenes of New York episode. Um, I have a question: Are the music cues as amazing as the series? Um, uh, I, w- I want to say I've been as drawn to them as the series, but yeah, I think that's that's the strength of the series, and I think it does carry over to this film. Though, as I say, I'm, I'm, it's, it's hard to think about the positives when the negatives are so many. But uh, they, there we go. I yeah. get the sense that you've been absolutely gutted by this film. Mate. Yeah, yeah. Disappointed oh, sorry. is very much the, uh, the thing. But hopefully there'll be more to come in the Sopranos extended universe. <laughs> um, yeah. The CU. I'm coming on to Yeah, I'm coming on to the Limey now, which uh, is a Steven Soderbergh film. I think this is my third or fourth of his. Unsane, don't get me started. I never want to think about that again. Um, but the live is the 1999 film, which is on Amazon Prime. It stars Terence Stamp in a in a very Cockney role. Lots of Cockney slang and sort of... All right, aye. And then I, I don't know, I can't do Cockney. <laughs> <laughs> what? No, no. Oh, my God. But yeah, there you he, go. 
he's given it large in the East London kind of uh, vibe. It's very enjoyable as a as a crime film, I think. I think Terence Stamp is brilliant. I think it's a great performance. You've got Barry Newman uh, from The Great Vanishing Point here. And um, I've written Harry Fonda in my notes, but of course it uh, can't be. It's Peter. His son, it's his son, Peter, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm sure Henry Fonda would have been good in this if he wasn't, uh, you know, deceased. Um, but the main gripe with this film is the editing. It's so uh, it's so horrible. Um, it, it sort of goes in the next scene, but it's got the audio from the previous scene. Was it the audio from the following scene and it's sort of frozen in the previous scene? It's just so nauseating. Yeah. It's a strange technique that I've seen it done in other movies before. I think the one that sticks with me the most, though, is The Killing of a Sacred Deer. Because it's whenever the creepy kid Martin is like basically telling Colin Farrell and his family what's going to happen. It's like sort of playing over the action that he's describing. So it's like everything is already a foregone conclusion and everybody's screwed. And that's great in that context, you know what I mean? Because it's such a freaky film. Um, but yeah, in the limey, what, what's what's the purpose really? Yeah, it's a bit. Thing uh, is, uh, forgive me though, because I've, I've seen the I've seen the limey before, but it was years ago. And am I right in thinking though, it's Terrence Stamp is out in L.A. to find the killer of his daughter? Yes. I'll have to rewatch it because I really enjoyed it from first viewing, and I think that that editing technique it didn't really dawn on me at the time, but. When it's like a like a husband, or no, well, he's in this case uh, Terence Stamps, the father, who's in a pursuit of her daughter's killer, and that idea is like the the dialogue like leaks into the following scene, like kind of shows his frustrations. It shows his like sort of psyche of mm-hmm. how he's on a, a voyage to try to discover something. Always moving so I think forward. Yeah, exactly. So I think momentum, that's possibly the momentum. thinking behind. Yeah. Exactly. That's mm-hmm. the positive thinking behind it, but I'll have to rewatch to see how effective it was or not. Also, King Arthur: Legend of the Sword does that, um, and it just feels like the entire film's a zip file because, like, all the set pieces are basically just narrated and then edited together like a montage. And then by the time that the narration's finished, the set pieces finished, and so is the montage. So it's like you're watching a film in fast forward all the time. <laughs> it's nice. really annoying. So I I get it there, and that is a proper oh right, governor, I've got a sold kind of thing, you know, goose fat John. Don't mug me off. <laughs> Sorry, what'd you say? I said don't mug me off. That's my favourite. <laughs> co- me off. My favourite Cockneyism. Don't mug me off. Anyway, okay. Sorry. Sorry about that, Scott. We Not went off on accent. a tangent there. Yeah, <laughs> we're going to be uh, going to have a three-hour episode of we're going to reach film like that in detail, but uh, that's what it's about. Very very passionate. Another one I'm going to talk about is Lauro. Lauro, but my Italian isn't very good. Uh, this is uh, Paolo Sorrentino's um, bio. Well, it's not really a biopic because if they call it a biopic, Sylvia Berlusconi would sue with them. <laughs> but uh, this is a this is a, a dramatic um, interpretation of uh, Italy's most infamous politician um, since that one. Um, but uh, this is. Tony Savino is uh, absolutely brilliant, as he was in The Great Beauty. He inhibits the role so so much gusto, uh, so much passion. It's just fantastic, uh, his performance. Um, The bits without uh, Tony Savino are terrible, um, actually. 
it's just a hedonistic uh, garbage when he's not in it. But when he is, it's absolutely brilliant, and that's why uh, this film's worth watching. This, this is one of the great performances of, uh, of the last decade, I would say. I Ooh, think it's ab- absolutely brilliant. Just so, just makes all well, his own, uh, completely embodies all we imagine about Silvio Berlusconi, I think. And for that reason, it's worth watching. As I say, it's half terrible, half good. Well, so, at least it, that's just yeah. the um, our version of it, isn't it? Because yeah. it's about it's about two and a half hours, isn't it? Yeah, and it's over three in Italy. It was split yeah. in two. So it's two films, yeah. Maybe it, it would work better in that way. Yeah. Um, <laughs> another one I'm going to go into in detail is uh, Office Space, uh, which is on Disney+. Plus. The 1999 comedy by Mike Judge, creator of the iconic Beavis and Butthead and King of the Hill, neither of which I've actually seen. So there we go, but... Nonetheless, I know a lot of you will have... Uh... You've never seen Beavis and Butthead? You've never seen Beavis or Butthead? No! No, I haven't! Shut up, Simon! Shut up! Shut up! Shut up! Yes, exactly. Scott's Thank not you. getting any of these, by the way. <laughs> yeah. I suppose there'll be people uh, cutting with laughter. Uh, yeah, a very accurate that. impression. Yeah. But, I've uh, got the entire yeah. Beavis and Butthead collection if you want to borrow it. I haven't it's got so the King good, of the man. Hill one, but so uh, King, of the, King of the Hill is superb as well. Mm-hmm. Excellent. Now, on Office Space, um, it's uh, set in a, in a software company. It's basically a, a satire of uh, corporate America. It's about some dissatisfied employees who are treated to the usual um, inhibitions on their work life. Joining. The ridiculous um, targets, um, unrealistic, unachievable things, typing up things, not really caring about employees' welfare and all that. And and TPS reports. Yes, TPS reports, exactly. And their uh, unnecessariness. That's not a word, but I've just said it, so there you go. (laughs) So about knowing what you say rather than uh, making grammatical sense. But it's not one of the great comedies, but it's a really enjoyable comedy and one which is very much worth watching. It's it's very funny. There's a lot of laughs to uh, keep up the pace. Uh, Ron Livingston in the uh, in the lead role, it's starting to not care about uh, work boundaries and limitations, and just sort of uh, saying, "Massive screw you to the corporate world and the stranglehold it keeps in our lives." It's it's weird in the sense that it uses the uh, Houston rap group uh, Ghetto Boys quite uh, quite extensively, um, which most famously the song "Mind Playing Tricks on Me," which isn't used here. <laughs> Grimish there, showing us the CD there, the album. Thank you. I, the, and, uh, I've got the uh, I've got the soundtrack. I love that you have that to hand. <laughs> Damn, it feels good to be a gangster by the exactly. Ghetto Boys. Yeah. What an absolute <laughs> tune. That's <laughs> <laughs> well the film, I, I guess. Uh, but this is the one of the most memeable films of the last uh, in history. With uh, Gary Cole in particular, his meme. Um, which That'd be if, just great. Yeah, whichever you look up, you'll recognise immediately. And uh, Stephen Root in a. In, a, uh, in the secondary memeable uh, category, but yeah, it's uh, it's very enjoyable and one which I would I would recommend because there are a lot of laughs. I finished David Fincher's um, filmography in time for last week, well, not last week of course, last episode, last episode some yeah. time ago. Now I finished uh, Wes Anderson's with Life Aquatic with Steve Zissou, oh. which is on Disney Plus. It's what not one of his best, I didn't think. I enjoyed it, but I don't think it's on uh, that top level with the Royal Tenenbaums, etc. As I say, I'm not going to go into too much detail on it, um, but I've also was, watched... Sorry, I was just going to say that was my first ever uh, Wes Anderson film, which I watched when I was like nine. 
And oh I, my god, that makes me feel so old. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Your first, my last. There we go. Best yeah, there you go. Did it make you want to listen to lots of Bowie? Yeah, great soundtrack. A bit of Portuguese Bowie there as well. Mm. Uh, hang on a second. I'm just by my CD collection here, so <laughs> any film that you care to mention, I'll be able to. Oh yes, and there's the soundtrack. Unreal. <laughs> Graham, we need to go to your house now the pandemic's nearly over nearly. Uh, and then we can rifle through your collection indeed, anytime <laughs> we're going to finish with the best years of our lives from 1946 William Wyler which is on Amazon Prime and which won Best Picture um, this is another one where the, another film should have won It's a Wonderful Life, which is better um, I don't know if that's if that made us like this less. Maybe I don't know. Cause I feel it was. I feel it's under life was wronged. But the best years of our lives is good. It's good. Uh, probably not as good as I wanted it to be. But there we go. Stars Frederick March and Dana Andrews, the two big names in this, and uh, Theresa Wright, who was in Hitchcock's Shadow of a Doubt, which was brilliant. But I'm going to mention um, Harold Russell, who was a, a non-professional actor uh, in this film. He plays a veteran who lost his arms in um, the Navy in the Pacific Theatre and he actually did in real life lose both of his arms so uh, who better to play this role and he's the only non-professional actor to win a, an Aknoska oh, so wow. a nice interesting fact from this film mm. and I think he's the best part of it um, just in terms of looking at the difficulties uh, injured veterans faced particularly in that time um, Certainly, I probably don't have the uh, care they need now, never mind then. So you can only imagine what it was like back in the 40s, especially given the number of troops who were injured. Um, but it's a worthwhile film to watch. Uh, having a classic film on a streaming service is all, always makes it worthwhile. But It's a Wonderful Life should have won. Um, but, you know, who cares what the Oscars do? They exactly. quite often get it wrong. Um, but I watched another William Wyler this year, The Desperate Hours on on TV, I think it was um, I think it was actually talking pictures or maybe TCM, one of the two, and that was a better film as well. There's a very respectable remake of the Desperate Hours from 1990 with Mickey Rourke and Mimi Rogers. Oh, Mimi it. Rogers! Yes, becoming a favourite on the podcast. Now I still have yet to see the Rapture. I'm sorry, Laura. One day you won't regret it. It's so very John Borman. Ooh, what an interesting citation! Lovely. Is that all for you, Scott? It is all for me, uh, yep. So. Quality. Is it okay if I jump into my sections then? Yeah, jump straight that's in, over to you now, Simon, so take it away. Ploosh, here we go. Right, yes, so jumping off with a wholesome deadpan comedy on movie. This marks the first Kazakh movie I've ever seen, because no, Borat doesn't count. Uh, this is Yellow Cat. It's a slightly goofy, slightly tragic comedy about a simpleton on bail and in debt to a corrupt police officer who embarks on an odyssey to build a movie theatre in the far-off mountains. The only catch being that the only movie that they'll show is Les Samurai, because that is the movie that he watched once in his orphanage, and uh, he absorbed the movie and now wants to become like Alain Delon. Its closest cousin is probably Badlands, not least of all because it uses a music cue from Badlands uh, for one sustained sequence. But if you're a fan of bleak landscapes and offbeat travelogue cinema, this fits the bill with some charm to boot. Movie also took me on a, another bleak trip to Russia recently, but oddly enough, it's a trip I've taken many times before 
in a way. They are currently streaming the final film of Alexei Balabanov, the late Russian filmmaker who made his name with the scummy millennial gangster saga Brother and its sequel, but later in his career chose to very ambitiously readapt the Strugatsi Brothers' Roadside Picnic, or in other words, remake Andrei Tarkovsky's Stalker. Now, for those unfamiliar with my favourite film, it is about three men who venture into a zone where a meteorite has landed, and in the middle of all the weird and dangerous radioactive fallout is a room which apparently grants your innermost wish. That's the basic concept that Balabanov is working with here, but if you're expecting a straight rehash of the book or the film, think again, because this basically takes the idea in a totally different direction. It almost feels Guy Ritchie-esque in places, and it reduces Stalker's writer, scientist, and Stalker triptych to a bunch of drunken criminals who don't really exactly chew over the meaning of life, but just brag about sleazy stuff that's clearly not true. And then it kind of shifts gears into this very weirdly ethereal climax at this gorgeous kind of bleak leaning bell tower where the characters all meet their fates in different ways and also encounter Balabanov himself as an ailing filmmaker who can't seem to get his wish granted. This whole meta development takes on this very eerie new meaning when you realise that Balabanov died suddenly of a heart attack soon after finishing the film at the exact same age as Tarkovsky who also died as a result of making Stalker. So I'm not getting, you know, all truth is out there about this weird parallel, but I guess filmmakers should refrain from adapting Roadside Picnic if they don't want to die at the age of 54. <laughs> if that is uh, a bit heavy for you, then go and try The Love Witch, also on movie, a very cheeky and very playful genre reconstruction from Annabella about a happy-go-lucky witch who dabbles heavily and dangerously in love magic, leaving a trail of bodies in her wake. If you've seen one frame from this, you'd easily mistake it for something from the late 60s or early 70s, and that's credit to Billa's astonishing eye for detail in every department, from costume to sets to back-projected lensing. It's all very lush and realised in a way that most filmmakers can only dream of. She's certainly my favourite director when it comes to breathing life into old genre material and her even better debut can be found on BFI player so you're looking for Viva over there and the love witch over here on movie Viva is a more sort of classic sexploitation fair but the love witch is a perfect tonic for your average spooky season content it is a horror in a way it's just very sweet it is surprisingly touching as well and if you want something else to Sweep out your legs in a similar way on Arrow Player, you could do a lot worse than Jumbo, a very offbeat romantic drama about a shy young woman and a theme park ride. So yeah, she kind of falls in love with a theme park ride. Yeah, so this is the latest in Simon's bizarre romance recommendations, and he's finally getting on to the subject of objectophilia. On paper... <laughs> about time too. <laughs> <laughs> don't we all yeah um on paper this does sound like a film that could very easily be laughing at its main character but actually it's an incredibly sensitive and empathetic drama about a woman embracing her kinks and just coming out to those that she knows and loves noemi milant from portrait of a lady on fire is a great vessel for this kind of 
sweet, awkward energy. And the sometimes very literal sex scenes between her and this giant neon waltzer are actually kind of beautiful and tender. So if nothing else, it's actually, you know, filling in with our wholesome movies quarter that we're going to cover later in the episode quite nicely. Just two quick things on BFI Player to wrap things up. They've just added Denis Villeneuve's sophomore feature, Maelstrom, to the service. This one is before he blossomed into the leading voice of arty sci-fi in Hollywood. It's a Quebec-set drama about a woman suffering the emotional fallout of a hit-and-run accident, which happens to be narrated by a fish as it's being killed in a fishmonger's. I haven't seen this yet, but from that logline, I'm kind of in for it. Uh, BFI Player also lists it as a nice companion piece to one of his very best works, Enemy, starring a double turn from Jake Gyllenhaal. And that's all I'm going to say about Enemy, because if you haven't seen it, it's best experience going in completely blind. And finally, round about this time last year, the London Film Festival launched its first online edition. And the one film I paid for uh, was Abel Ferrara's Siberia, starring Willem Dafoe, as a man who takes a very strange spiritual journey across time and space and snow and sand to find himself, maybe. I don't know. I just wanted to point this out because it's now subscription exclusive, and I believe that Laura has just gotten involved and watched it. So, what did you think to it? I would like a reckoning of the soul with everything that goes off in that film. Um, I I stand Abel and I stand Willem Dafoe so hard. Uh, yeah, it's certainly out there. <laughs> um, but magnificent. I believe at this point, Ferrara is trolling to a degree. When he was in <laughs> when he was in Newcastle a couple of years ago for the first um, Newcastle International Film Festival, a gentleman who attends all the Screen Age kickses and is quite active on the Retina Burn group called Jeff Brown. He described Ferrara as, you can smell the crazy. I love him, <laughs> but I believe that is the perfect description. What a glorious, glorious man. And thank goodness he's still making films. Yeah. I loved Siberia. I've watched it three times in the last month. Um, Whoa. I... I didn't know you were such a fan. I, I knew you liked it, but... Yeah, watching people psychologically fall apart in a bid to make peace with themselves. Who better to watch do that than Willem Dafoe? Of course. Well, on the back of Willem Dafoe as well, isn't uh, The Lighthouse coming up on Netflix shortly? Yes, yeah. it's it's on now, actually, yeah. It's on now, is it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have you seen so it yet, Graham? No, not yet. Um, yeah, with uh, with the uh, child number one now in tow, uh, very little time to watch films, uh, hosting a film podcast and all that, but uh, we'll see what we can squeeze in. Yeah, I mean, you should bring up young Elliot with The Lighthouse, because I think he'll appreciate it. <laughs> a bit, a bit, Maybe uh, leave a bit it until he's like 18. 18? Come on, yeah, dude, it's 15. a 15. My youngin didn't look at, didn't glance at their phone once when we watched it. Wow, which is quite some claim. Yeah. <laughs> is it because of Arpat was in it? Oh, I'd be disowned for that. No, I'm the Arpat's pervert in the house. I'm afraid. <laughs> <laughs> Aren't we all though? Aren't we all? This time last year, I was working with troubled teenagers and I got relentlessly ripped for sparkly vampire perjurative word. 
They're just like, how come way? on, though. Literally anything, any one thing with Robert Pattinson in, in the last nine, ten years. Take Water for Elephants, even, right? Water for Elephants is a good showcase of his acting talents, and I will not have a word said against that wonderful man. Um, well, same with Radcliffe. Considering yes. where they began, they've done amazing things. They could have gone yes. for the money, but they've gone weird, and I love that for them. Mm-hmm. Very good stuff. But uh, Simon uh, nicely segued into uh, your uh, area there, so Laura. So do you want to uh, to pick up with uh, your um, what you've picked out for uh, f- suggestions for viewers? Well, for listeners, for viewing. Okay, well, I'm going to be very, very quick about this one because I've already mentioned it on Twitter. The Mother, the 2004 Roger Mitchell film, Anne Reid and the genial Harry Grout, Peter Vaughan. They're older, they go to London, visit their children. Peter Vaughan dies... Who am I, she thinks suddenly. She discovers she's quite partial to a bit of the handsome young handyman sorting out her daughter's house at Daniel Craig. It's amazing. Um, The name's man. Handyman. (laughs) 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 The mother shocked me enormously when I saw it for the first time because it was a significantly older woman enjoying the pleasures of the flesh, shall we say. It's got an amazing script by Hanif Qureshi, who, the Buddha of Suburbia, My Beautiful Laundrette, his pen is excoriating, to say the least, shall we say. It was on BBC4 earlier this week. I've just checked the iPlayer. It's available for about a year. You really ought to watch it if you haven't already seen it. It's a marvellous, marvellous film, and I think it's a bit of an indictment on the portrayal of female sexuality in film that it is so shocking to watch. It's great, though. You really should check it out. But skedaddling quickly on, this Sunday, the 17th of October, at quarter to 11 on BBC Two, we have Armando Iannucci's 2017 adaptation of Fabienne Nuri and Thierry Robin's The Death of Stalin. Now, I'm sure most listeners would already be well-versed in this film. It's magnificent. And it's something, every single viewing, I take away something different. I will talk one day about how Rupert Friend steals every scene he's in as Stalin's alcoholic son. But at the moment, I'm feeling Jason Isaacs. Hello, indeed. Hello, indeed, to Jason Isaacs. (laughs) Um, I'm not going to repeat his iconic dialogue, but uh, (laughs) I think I can take a flesh lump in a waistcoat. It's... (laughs) I was just about, please say flesh lump in a waistcoat. (laughs) Yeah. It's a hoot. It's every bit as chaotic and frankly terrifying as you might expect in the extremely unlikely event that you haven't seen it. This Sunday, quarter to 11 on BBC Two, Please do, please do. It's just magnificent. Um, Another film I wanted to flag up because it's not going to be on a streaming service is Wednesday the 20th of October at 9pm on Talking Pictures TV. We have Neil Jordan's 1986 film, Mona Lisa, with Bob Hoskins and Kathy Tyson. So Bob Hoskins 
just out of jail. He's a man out of time, shall we say. He ends up as a chauffeur for high-class prostitute Kathy Tyson, gets sucked into this web of investigating where her missing friend is. Without giving too much away, um, if we're going dot to dot about it, it's not a million miles away from Taxi Driver. I don't always vibe with Neil Jordan, but this is one of my favourites, and I would say a large part of that is down to Bob Hoskins. Perhaps it's my vintage and having grown up on The Long Good Friday and Who Framed Roger Rabbit. I mean, I find even now, sort of six or seven years after his death, I will look at films that have British character actors of gravitas and I'll think, oh, Bob Hoskins should be in this. You know, watching Dunkirk, watching that King of Thieves film. I miss him to this day. He was a wonderful, mm. wonderful actor. But something that really jumped out at me, looking at Mona Lisa again for the first time in 20, 25 years, Clark Peters from The Wire is in it as a very young man. Mm as a deeply unsavoury character. And there's a quite extraordinary scene in a lift that um, is pure giallo. You may be tempted to overlook it, but if you're near a television next Wednesday, please do check it out. It's I like it very much indeed. Cool. Very good there. Thank you very much for those contributions, Laura. Um, now... If uh, any of you listeners out there follow us on our socials, and I think we did mention it in our last episode, uh, was a call out to doing a bit of a spin on what we normally do in the run up to Halloween, where we cover um, our favourite horror films. We did that last year. We don't want to repeat ourselves. Our horror films don't change from year to year. Um, <laughs> but we thought, why not do a different spin on it and let's look at wholesome films, something that way it makes you feel a bit warm and snuggly, where the nights are closing in, you want to watch something that just reaffirms your joy of life, something that's inoffensive, something that's going to make you feel better. Um, so we put it out there. So I'll, we had suggestions from listeners um, of their favourite. So if I kick off and I'll just go through what we've had um, from feedback from Instagram. Uh, we've had uh, Jack Morgan, who suggested uh, James Stewart in Harvey. He described it as an absolute innocence in the purest form. We also had some feedback from Jay on Instagram, who recommends True Stories, which is directed and starring David Byrne um, of Talking Heads fame. Um, it describes it as the happiest little town cinema. So I had the IMDb it. I hadn't heard of the film before, so um, I'll definitely look that up. Um, and you, Simon, have got a list from our Facebook uh, correspondence. I do, I do. Um, Peter said the Lego Batman movie. Which I was very surprised by, but he's absolutely right, because it is a nice film about Batman finally kind of finding some happiness, which I don't think any other motion picture has ever allowed Batman, except for the tacked-on ending of The Dark Knight Rises, so thank you very much for that, Peter. Jack says, Punch Drunk Love, in its own way, yes, I completely agree. Daniel, Wally, cannot deny that. Blake, Whisper of the Heart, perfectly paced coming-of-age romance. Of just the right amount of twee. Oh, and there's a shot in this that was the inspiration for the low five beats to study and relax to thumbnail. So uh, if anybody's you know tuned into that live channel on YouTube just to chill out to some anime vibes, then that is where that's from. Darren, aka my father, said Gregory's girl. Ask your dad. I've had this conversation with him before, so I didn't bother. 
Lauren said, I'd have to go with Amelie, maybe Paddington 2, too. I was super low when it came out, and it managed to convince me to get in the Christmas spirit. Stupid bear. Can't deny that either. Another Jack just rattled off a bunch saying, Moonrise Kingdom, Lost in Translation, How's Moving Castle, Spirited Away, Short Term 12, Treasure Planet, Little Miss Sunshine, and Paddington 1 and 2. Now, we had a lot of Studio Ghibli in that list mm-hmm. there, and I believe that Scott is going to chime in with a little bit of that. Yes, absolutely, Simon. And um, when I thought about this, I was thinking, I need to have a Pixar film and a Ghibli film. It must be. And uh, the Ghibli I went for is my neighbour Totoro, which um, I believe I saw at the Townside once, maybe the first mm-hmm. time I saw With me, probably, I yeah. think. Yeah, it been quite a few years ago, but uh, I have seen it once subsequently. It needs a rewatch, though, because it's going to be top 50 films, so... Uh, that's that's based on the. It's just got that legacy in, in my in my brain, just of being so wonderful, and I need to watch it again. Um, it's been a few years, and I need to watch it again. But that feeling never leaves you. That feeling of wholesomeness, does does it? The warmth. It's the, it's beautiful. Oh, it's it's I mean, warm to think about. You know, you, your brain kind of heats up. Not yeah, too much, but like absolutely. Yeah, it's nice. And really, every other Ghibli film, maybe not all of them. Some that are a bit, maybe a bit more, bit. A bit of Grave of the Fireflies, anybody? <laughs> haven't seen that actually. <laughs> but, uh... Oh no! It's, yeah, it's you'll want you'll want to watch it once, um, remember it, but you probably won't revisit it like other Ghibli films. Yeah, <laughs> that's enough of that. Not something not wholesome, please. Yes, yes. Um, moving on, moving on. Yeah, there's so many Ghibli's that fit in that category. Same with Pixar. Uh, probably all all of theirs fit in this category, but the one I've gone with is Inside Out. Just think about, uh, is it Bing Bong? Oh think... no, don't talk about Bing Bong. I'm triggered. Oh, I think, I think if I, th- yes, I'm triggered too. Every time I think about him, <laughs> uh, I do get quite emotional. So, yeah. But at least, at least you still have the memory of Bing Bong. I could only yeah. watch it once because of Bing Bong. Even the trailer makes me cry now. Thing is, so I, I mean, I've sort of welled up for Pixar films before. The one that gets me every time is Monsters Inc. When, really? Um, when Sully and isn't sure that he'll get to see Boo again, uh, and when there's a, a yeah, creak at the door, and you hear when you hear Boo go like sort of monster or kid, no kitty, kitty, and I'm like, oh, that gets me every time. That's but what for I some call reason, my cat as well. <laughs> <laughs> but for some reason, Inside Out didn't really touch me the way it a lot of it did a lot of people. I don't know if I just need to watch it again, but first time you I just watched didn't it, I was have a childhood. Like, mm. I would like burn to- the heretic, burn the heretic. <gasps> I would like. Hey, come on! I would like to think I'm not alone in this, but when I took my child to see Inside Out, aged about ten, something came full circle inside me, hearing one Mister Kale McLachlan as the heroine's oh, dad, as hot dad. Mm. <laughs> yeah, nice little performance from Kale. Good to see him getting work outside of Lynch. Did you have any more uh, Pixar um, suggestions there, or was it just Inside Out there for um, yourself, Scott? I recently mentioned the ones that uh, get me every time. One being Up, that food, that opened ten minutes, which is just oh, like God, yeah. devastating. Devastating. Uh, the end of Toy Story three, which is devastating. Devastating. And, uh, Toy Story four. God damn it! It got us again. No, Andy. <laughs> will, they will be okay. Oh God, yeah, me too. I, th- I think Toy Story three is uh, quite a bit better than Toy Story four, but still, it just. 
Yeah. Uh, the furnace, when they're all holding hands, I yeah. sobbed. In fact, the day we went to see it was the day they began demolishing the Trinity Square car park. And oh, really? we stand get Carter in my house, so that was an emotional day. But the furnace scene, and they're all looking at each other, and it's like Schindler's List. I don't believe I've ever cried so hard in my life. <laughs> Actually, I'd never realised there's a link between Toy Story 3 and Schindler's List. <laughs> This yeah. is supposed to I've be wholesome, me. damn it. Come on. <laughs> I know this is all things that make us feel really different. Yeah. Your last one better be so, a good one, Scott. No, happy to Come on, Scott, yeah. Um, what have you got? To be honest, I was struggling a bit because I, I try to think of, get things that are on human services because I want, want people yeah, to know that I can check them out. Um, the first show, obvi- um, the first one, as we know, a lot of Ghibli's are on Netflix now. Um, obviously, uh, Pixar's on Disney Plus, quite clearly. But. Uh, Rocky's actually the one I've gone for for me third. Wow. I, th- I think it's on Netflix, but I, I don't know. This is, this is some populist wholesomeness. It's a great American story of an underdog. You know, Americans all over that, aren't they? And so, so am I. I'm over it as well. All over it. Um, <laughs> I, I, I think the subsequent ones aren't as good, definitely, but I still enjoy them. But I just think Rocky's just because it's, you know, it's just this guy who's... No one fancies him, but he comes and fights one of the best boxers in the world, and um, it's just it's just uplifting. It just uplifts me. Um, and it, and you can about, be uplifted watching it on Amazon Prime. Amazon Prime. I couldn't remember which one it was on, but I knew it was on one of them. Yeah, yeah. It's obviously you look at nineteen seventy six. Maybe it shouldn't have won Best Picture. Maybe I, I can say that. I can say it's probably there were better films from that year, but it's it's just so. It, it, it is Oscar fodder. It, it, it is. I have to admit it. But I, I just love it. I think it's so warm, so uplifting, so yeah. You have to cheer for it. Cheer for yeah. I don't yeah. begrudge yeah. Sly my affection in the slightest, but related. In the slightest. Related, Rocky Balboa is on ITV on the 22nd at quarter to 11. Lovely. Thank you, Laura. I'll spare you bursting into living in America, which is what I do every other time somebody mentions Rocky. <laughs> yeah, great one. Thank you very much, uh, Scott. Uh, so, Laura, what uh, suggestions have you got for your wholesome selection? Okay, so I have something available to rent via Amazon Prime, the 1987 John Hughes written and produced film, Some Kind of Wonderful. It was directed by Howard Duch. Douche, I have no idea. It's. I hope it's not douche. It's basically a more evolved version of Pretty in Pink, really. You know, it's a love triangle. So we have terribly earnest Eric Stoltz, his tomboy best friend, Mary Stuart Masterson, and the posh girl, Leah Thompson. The thing that elevates this film is the supporting cast. So we have... Craig Sheffer from Nightbreed as scumbag, posh lad, ex-boyfriend. And, in fact, I bored Simon Daft about this a couple of weeks ago. You didn't, because I thoroughly enjoyed watching all this footage. Magnificent Canadian character actor who I particularly idolised growing up, Elias Cotias, is like the school dubious character. And you need to watch it. It's the loveliest film. And it's that bit sharper and tighter than earlier John Hughes stuff and it's not kind of creepy and problematic in the way that say something like 16 Candles is and 
New Order producer Stephen Haig is the music supervisor. It's a lovely, lovely film. I, I've given you a rough outline by saying it's pretty in pink, but better, basically. It's very, very sweet, but it's one of the lesser talked about films of the John Hughes stable. So you should really check it out. Some kind of wonderful, it's called. And I was delighted to see added to Disney Plus stars Jared Hess's third film, Gentleman Broncos from 2009. Now this film got an absolute kicking when it came out. What made my family and I go for it was noticing Jermaine Clement was in it. So lonely, awkward, homeschooled young lad gets enrolled in a writer's camp by his mum. One of the writers giving the talks at the course is Jermaine, who is basically like evil Neil Gaiman. And this was the sort of gestation <laughs> of his extraordinary Tim Curry impersonation. It's a little bit problematic watching it in 2021, but then if you think it was probably written in maybe 2007, some of the language and stuff, you know, teenage boys would have talked like that. It can be quite puerile, but basically, Young Lad writes this story, struggling evil Neil Gaiman, nicks his story. So throughout the course of the film, we have three different interpretations of the story in which Sam Rockwell plays the hero, having an absolute hoot with crazy blonde wigs and wild pink outfits and stuff. A lot of the humour is, you know, kind of this level some people might find it offensive personally i lap up poo jokes <laughs> it's i lap up is probably the wrong yes, word for that yes <laughs> indeed um for me this film has a huge heart what really really moves me is jennifer coolidge one of the queens of all the christopher guest films and of course the fit mum in the american pie films the relationship between her and her son is so lovely um, and this film has been made with a lot of love and consideration to sci-fi and nerdiness. The opening credits are like a montage of crazy old pulp sci-fi covers. I used to work with a book charity and my idea of heaven was alphabetizing the donated sci-fi covers, you know, the Harry Harrison King <laughs> Rat series and it's it's another world. It's a glorious world. And this film is kind of a love letter to it. Like I say, mm. please don't Google the reviews because 95% of people despised it. But it's if you can get through the poo jokes, it's a really sweet, huge-hearted film. And anything that finishes with Carry On My Wayward Son, you know, what's not to love? <laughs> I get a lump in my throat every time at that song. And yet, Disney Plus... Um, it doesn't have the profile it should, in my opinion, but I think it's incredibly sweet. And you will laugh yourself daft at Jermaine being evil sci-fi writer. He just hasn't... <laughs> There's one particularly glorious scene where he's talking about how to name your characters. Um, I, I love it, and you should see it too. Gentlemen Broncos. 
Yeah, seconded. Yeah, I, I saw it when it was on film four um, late years ago, and then picked up when noticing that it was on Disney Plus. It's really underappreciated. I don't think it's quite on the hit rate as Napoleon Dynamite, and it can leave a lot of people cold. Um, but yeah, it's full of heart, and uh, just go with it because it has some brilliant sequences. It's amazing, isn't it? Glad to hear somebody else loves it too. Yes, well spotted. Um, Simon, do you want to go through uh, your wholesome favourites? Yes, I would. Thank you very much, Graham. First one I'm going to start with is actually a very recent film, but I've thought about it most days since, not least of all because the subject of the film has been part of my playlist every single day since, and it is The Sparks Brothers by Edgar Wright, the exceptionally entertaining documentary about Russell and Ron Mayle. The Sparks Brothers, otherwise known as Sparks. Um, this documentary follows them all the way from their childhood all the way up to the production of Leos Carax's Annette, which is also a fantastic film that everyone should see. Uh, considerably less wholesome, but uh, I think the thing about the Sparks Brothers that kind of really makes it good is that it's one of those music documentaries that is very genuine in the way that it presents its subject, but then you find out that their subjects are actually really nice people. You know? I watched When You're Strange, which is also currently streaming on Mubi right now, and the documentary about The Doors, and, you know, I have a few problems with that film in terms of, you know, how it tells the story, and, you know, it's it's just not very exciting, but, you know, Jim Morrison, obviously a very troubled and problematic person, but then you just get to the heart of the Sparks Brothers over the course of 140 minutes it never once kind of settles down pace wise and it just kind of makes you fall in love with these two guys who just do their own thing you know what i mean it, it's it's the one thing that we all want to do in our lives is to just go out there and just do what makes us happy and sort of express ourselves and that's what they've done without compromise for 55 years mm-hmm. with music and i have an infinite amount of respect for that and it just made me feel oddly kind of inspired even though that's certainly not my medium (laughs) um i thought it was absolutely lovely so it's not on any streaming services yet but i suspect it'll be out on blu-ray sooner rather than later and i would highly highly recommend it second on my list is maybe a more obvious choice but it's raising arizona nicholas cage and holly hunter in joel cohen's lovely baby napping zany looney tunes comedy um just got such that such a bittersweet heart behind you know all the you know comedy mad max biker you know all the four horsemen of the apocalypse rolled into one versus this just like really nice human relationship which is very flawed and ultimately i think the film's big enough to you know, forgive the characters of their flaws at the very end, you know, it just makes me feel kind of happy, and also the Carter Burwell score as well, it's not exactly, you know, what we'd think of his later work, you know, that sort of slow, sombre, kind of offbeat work, but just kind of very upbeat, hillbilly kind of music, just the thought of it puts a smile on my face, really. And the last one, I don't know, It's it's a film that I don't out and out love love, but I appreciate quite a lot. But I just walked away from it just going, I kind of feel better after this whole thing. It's Sully, Miracle on the Hudson. Um, the 
you know, microcosm biopic of Chelsea Sully Sullenberger who landed the flight in the Hudson River after it was hit by a flock of birds which uh, basically destroyed the engines. No lives were lost because of Sully and his co-pilot's professionalism. Tom Hanks plays Sully in the film, Clint Eastwood directing, and it's just that combination of one of the most likable leading men of all time directed by one of the most professional filmmakers ever. You know, two takes, we're done, we're moving on to the next one. The film runs for about like 90 minutes and it just doesn't waste a second of your time. It's basically half a courtroom drama and half a reconstruction of the incident of, you know, the the birds flying into the engines and all that. But in in both of those plot lines everybody keeps their cool so monumentally well and the film never really reaches this like you know there's no big standing fist pumping you know speech in the courtroom or anything it's just a bunch of people just going look i did my job i did it really well and lives were saved because of it and then at the end everyone's just kind of like yeah fair you're actually right there and it ends with like a cheesy one-liner and then it's done I don't know. I just really liked it. I just thought it was, you know, just put a smile on my face, even though it was kind of dry and dour in that sort of, you know, you're watching a biopic sort of way. And then, yeah, it's just nice. It's on Netflix, but it's also on television, Laura, coming up soon. Yep. Uh, Friday the 22nd, I believe BBC Two at nine o'clock. Lovely. So it'll probably be on iPlayer as well for a little while. So if you don't have Netflix on the off chance... Um, this is where you can join it there. Um, the thing is, as well, there's one suggestion that I forgot to uh, say in our listener correspondence there because it was on another page and I didn't scroll down to it. But Brooke said Kiki's Delivery Service. Oh, my goodness, yes. Yeah, another yes. Ghibli. There we go. <laughs> as the parent of a girl child, all of Ghibli are essential. And they're so progressive because most of their films are about strong young women. Mm. Kiki is the high watermark because it takes in all of it. You know, the grumpiness, the not talking. And, yeah, Phil Hartman. If we're talking about Kiki, it's Phil Hartman's voice performance as Gigi, really. That is the one. But it's just Hmm. beautiful. It's a beautiful, beautiful film. I should get more involved with Ghibli. Well, there's a whole, there's a load of them on Netflix. Pretty mm-hmm. much nearly the, not all the entire lot, but almost the back catalogue yeah. on Netflix. So I know it's get bad, it watched. Yeah. <laughs> Ghibli is the one that particularly speaks to young women, in my experience. Um, no, right. sorry, Kiki is the one that particularly speaks to young women, in my experience. Yeah, because it's kind of like um, a sort of Japanese version of Sabrina the Teenage Witch. But done a lot better. Yes, (laughs) absolutely. I've never dared touch the live-action version, though. I don't Hmm. see the need for there to be a live-action version. How do you improve on perfection? And the thing is, I like about the Ghibli films is because they're so well-regarded. When they get released over here in the the UK or in a wider release in America, um, Disney um, actually take over and do the um, the dubbing of it so even if you watch it with uh, the UK dub or the sorry the English dub um i believe it was um oh who was the guy behind pixar John Lasseter um, he is the ultimate Ghibli fanboy 
Exactly, but he's been booted off uh, after some allegations of uh, misconduct and ill behaviour towards women and things like that. So we shan't speak of him much longer. Uh, but he um, he oversaw a lot of the dubbing that went on for the uh, the wider releases of the Studio Ghibli films. So there's such a brilliant voice cast, um, and it's not quite as jarring a dub as you see on a lot of other um, sort of Asian films and animation that get dubbed into English. So, um, but. Both, I think there's something cute about the the Japanese. Um, if you watch them, if uh, for the subtitles, but the English dubs as well are are very good too. Although it's quite jarring if you watch the dub of My Neighbor Totoro and then watch the Neon Demon shortly after, and bear in mind that the heroine of the Neon Demon is <laughs> little is sister May in Totoro. Yeah, but she's had a long career. Yeah, she, she has. has yeah. To be fair, <laughs> true. She's but, grown um, up. I'll, um, yeah, but I've, I've got to admit, I'm kicking myself for not including any Ghibli films in my selection. Um, but um, I've gone a little bit more adult with mine, shall we say? Mm. Well, not adult, I'd say, but uh, I've gone live action. Um, I couldn't contain mine down to three, unfortunately. I've had to pick out four, but I'll rattle oh. through them. Um, it's terrible, I know. Sorry, I'm just greedy. Um, first off, um, Kevin Costner in Field of Dreams. Um, the story of a sort of a man pursuing his vision um, and a sort of single belief, and just the story of how it enables him to reconnect with his father. Um, just a, incredibly touching. Um, I mean, balls of tears. I think we watched it one family Christmas, didn't we, Scott? And I was sat um, on the carpet trying. To, yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, well, and I was trying to s- sat containing myself because um, otherwise there would have been tears like all down my face. I cannot um, remember that. Yeah, That's just, all I'm afraid. <laughs> no, no, well, you were probably on your phone. And um, James Earl Jones is basically J.D. Salinger, isn't he? Yeah, that's right. Um, so, yeah, just a superb film. I just think everything in it. Um, I think as well, if you listen to, uh, I think Simon Brew did a Film Stories podcast special with the uh, the writer-director a little while ago, um, where he rarely talks about um Field of Dreams, because um, he's a director who doesn't really get on with directing that much. He finds it a big chore. Um, so um, it's a really good insight into uh, the filmmaking process and what went into making Field of Dreams. That makes it such a classic. Next film, I would say, is Groundhog Day. Um, you get more laughs for Groundhog Day, but it doesn't come with any less heart for it. I think Bill Murray is just absolutely spot on as the uh, grimacing um, sort of humbug-type character who, through a course of a time loop um, structure, he ends up sort of uh, seeing that... Um, Free will is his road to redemption. Um, so it's very good to see how he tries to bat against um, the time loop of uh, using it to his advantage. But then he realises that to go with the flow and use your heart is how you see things through. So very good film. Also, I've um, with uh, Bill Forsyth's Local Hero. Um, just from a northeast perspective, when you hear that theme tune, it just gets me right here from a footballing stance. But I'm also, sure it does. the film itself <laughs> says a smackham. Um, but then also just the just the touching story, the this the story behind a village um, and a man who comes to uh, sell their town for the sake of a huge oil refinery. Um, but the film, the wider theme, I find of the film is all about finding a home even the villagers who are holding out for their village to be sold so they can all be millionaires and go off and buy huge plots of land and build somewhere else but it's all about settling and finding your roots um, which um, 
um, Mackay. Um, is it Mackay? Fulton Mackay, yeah. Fulton Mackay. Oh, no, not Fulton Mackay, but the main um, character. Uh, what's his name? Peter oh, Regat. That's right, but his character name, what's his name? Do, 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 do. The eponymous oh. local hero. <laughs> yes, that's right. Hold on, what's his name? Notable for a young Peter Capaldi as well. Mm-hmm. The that's whole right. thing building up between him and uh, Jenny Agatha's lovely. Um, sorry, yeah, but Peter Regat's character, it's uh, not Mackay, but he's just called Mac. He's just abbreviated to Mac. Um, it's just him sort of coming to Scotland, to this small village, uh, on the purpose of uh, trying to break or a de- broker a deal in order for the oil refinery to buy the uh, the villagers out. And just what he stumbles upon is just the quaint um, sort of lovely setting that he falls in love with the place. So just very touching, very heartwarming, so very wholesome. So I think it ticks all of those boxes. And then last but not least, uh, we've got the Shawshank Redemption. It's been analysed, it's been talked about, so I can't contribute anything more than what other people far greater than myself have said before but if you've not seen it just please sit down get get it watched it is on netflix um field of dreams is on amazon prime for free groundhog day prime for free unfortunately local hero isn't on any streaming but it's a film four production so it'll when it's on film four or channel four it'll often be on all four to view shortly after so do check it out but yeah shawshank redemption as a lot of people say you have to go through a whole lot of shawshank before you get to the redemption <laughs> gotta love that quote a couple of things before quickly going to my section it's that time of year again where what previously were the sony movie network has now been rebranded i think i covered this a while ago about the great movie network gr8 i think or is it just abbreviated grt great movies they've got the awful action one with seagal and van damme just avoid 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 and the ex of course the exclamation it's not great it's great 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 so yeah but then it's as i say it's that time of year again where what was the great movies classics channel has now converted to the wishy-washy hallmark dirge of great christmas yes it is no we it is honestly to see it is the worst channel ever. It's just wall-to-wall, awful, cheesy Christmas films. There are good Christmas films, there are great Christmas films, then there is this channel. I'm a big lover of this channel in terms of like great, of what they show on their classics and then their great movies channel. Not so much the action one, um, but when they bring out these Christmas ones, it's absolute dirge. So if people have a sort of be in their bonnet about Christmas films, it's because they've watched this channel. There are great Christmas films out there and we'll cover that in the near future when we come to christmas so um yes just to make people aware that if i do seem grouchy it's because that great classics channel is gone in place of that dirge now moving on to my areas as well so coming up at the day that we record this which is thursday the 14th of october so i've looked ahead i'm looking at friday the 22nd of october uh, bbc4 who do a great line of documentaries on uh, music documentaries on a friday night they've had a run of sort of repeats lately um but they're showing uh 2021s i believe or is it 2020 um, but anyway, it's the uh, Frank Zappa uh, documentary, Zappa, um, directed by Alex Winter, who you'll know as Bill from Bill and Ted. Um, Frankie? He's been given... Wow, I uh, didn't know he was a director as well. Yeah, yeah, he was a director. Yeah, he awesome. did... Um, actually, when you mentioned Freaky, what was it? No, Freaked. Freaked. If you, if you watch a film of his, Freaked as well. Um, 
It's a very good obscure cult mm. uh, film, so yes. But uh, he was being given um, unprecedented access to the Zappa archive. Um, basically, the family had all of Frank Zappa's stuff down the basement of this house, and they hadn't really gone through it. So basically, Alex Winter went, oh, I'd like to make a documentary. And they said, oh, well, you can tidy your basement while you're at it. And he just went through <laughs> so much footage. Um, so it's about two, just over two hours long. Um, I know a little bit about Frank Zappa. I don't know about the, I mean, the mothers of invention and his virtuosity his influential sort of improvisational sort of themes and how he played on Rift on like American uh, counterculture um, so I'll be really interested in learning more and delving into it the one thing I just want to ask as well is this film, when was it? it, was, it was 22 uh, it was 2020, sorry, it came out does anyone know why documentaries it gets just a short shrift when it comes to cinema releases, but then, like within no time, they're on TV. I'd love to get to the bottom of that because, fair enough, it must be it gets it out to a wider audience. But you do find documentaries where no sooner have they been out of the cinema or on a fair enough a limited release, they'll be on TV, and it's like, well, is it not because like companies like the BBC tend to fund more documentaries than they do than they do fiction, so that's why they've maybe well, got I mean, better this deals is a... than. I mean, that. this is a US. This is a US production, so I don't know. In terms how of distribution, though, you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah, but uh, yeah, just be that's a theory. But I hear you big time. Scorsese's George Harrison documentary, I think, turned up on BBC Four within a month of its cinema release. Mad. Yeah, exactly. So yeah, there's lots of little stuff out there where I mean, I've been holding out for this Zappa um, documentary because I didn't um, I didn't get a chance to see it when it was at the cinema. Um, so I was just like keeping an eye open. Then I just saw the listings. I was like, winner, winner, chicken dinner. So yeah, I'll be looking forward to that. Um, next also is I don't know if you've been following us on our latest episodes and also on our uh, street our. Um, social media platforms but we've been banging on about uh, the uh, Cellar Club as part of Talking Pictures TV on a Friday night they have uh, Carol Carol, is it Caroline Monroe Carol Monroe Caroline isn't it Caroline Caroline Monroe Monroe. that's right um She's been hosting these little segments and introducing um, sort of cult films, B movies, sci-fi's, horrors, and sort of uh, sort of uh, film noir. Um, they've done a few lately, um, so they're going a bit. Nineteen seventy four's Dracula, which was a TV movie adaptation um, with uh, Jack Palance. So you don't get your Christopher Lee, you don't get your Peter Cushing, you get Jack Palance as Dracula. Good so bone it's a bit structure a, for it, though. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, too right. Um, so I just thought it was a bit of a left field one that that's coming up this the same Friday, the twenty second at nine o'clock. Uh, but do tune in for the little introductions and outros for all the films that are covered on that. So the Cellar Club's um, continuing to go as far as I can see in the schedules. So um, yeah, well worth checking out. Talking Pictures TV on a Friday night for that. Next area to cover is on iPlayer. I've picked out uh, seventy eight fifty two. Hitchcock's shower scene. It's a documentary which purely focuses on the um, 45 second scene from uh, Hitchcock's Psycho, um, where they effectively set up 78 setup shots, which are where you set the camera, your lighting, it's where you basically angle everything from, uh, from your view of focus, um, and then 52 cuts. So Therefore, the 7852, um, all within 45 seconds. It's so they go through into minute detail, just talking about each individual cut, each individual setup, what it focuses on, what it's meant to uh, mean, what it's meant to show, what it doesn't show. Because a lot of misconception around the uh, 
shower scene is that it's not particularly violent. You don't see much. It's the same with the uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It comes with such a sort of people sort of fearing of how gory it is. There's not much gore. It's all what goes on. It's the sound. It's the cutting that cuts yeah. away just as a knife's about to go in. So it's what your brain plays tricks on with. On a side so, note, I saw Texas Chainsaw Massacre at the Odeon um, in August because mm. they were showing it again. And it's one of the most awful cinema experiences I've ever had. <laughs> but also one of the best in that respect because Jesus yeah. wept. Yeah, a lot. Very, very good film, though. But, yeah, I mean, I've never seen it at the cinema. Um, would I? Yeah, I would. Why not? Yeah, of course you would. Don't be stupid. Of course you would. <laughs> I've seen it enough times. I've seen it. Mind you, it's like I am in the other sort of my media enclave here where I've got the CDs and all my Blu-rays and DVDs. I could fish out the uh, the lovely limited edition white sleeve uh, DVD edition that also came with a poster of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I'll, I'll leave that for another time. Mm-hmm. But uh, 7852 is available for, as of the day we record, available for the next 23 days on iPlayer. Um, also on iPlayer, I've picked out one that I haven't seen yet, uh, which I'll hopefully be getting watching while it's available for the next 19 days, is uh, Barry Jenkins' follow-up to Moonlight, uh, which is If Beale Street Could Talk. Um, I do remember it getting rave reviews when it came out. Unfortunately, it skipped me by, so really looking forward to trying to get that caught on iPlayer. The story of a young woman um, who embraces her pregnancy uh, while she and her family set up to prove her childhood friend and lover innocent of a crime he didn't commit. Um, Cinematography is meant to be amazing. The, the music, score. It's just, yeah. Score, yeah, the score is stunning. That's uh, definitely on my to-do list. Um I think other than that, the last little bit for me is covering a little touch point on Disney Plus uh, was um, I watched uh, Black Widow uh, last week with that uh, coming out uh, available. Um, I don't know if any of you guys have managed to get it watched yet. Not yet. Mm. Expectations suitably lowered. Um, I was a bit nonplussed over it, really. I thought it was a very (laughs) subpar Marvel film. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was really poor. Like bottom four for me, four or five. Yeah, you know? just I don't, I, I don't care. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it was with it. It's just like yeah. It's also, like, I know she's. Yeah. Also, Ray Winston, possibly the worst oh, Marvel God. villain out of all of the Marvel villains. Yeah, that was bad. Awful. And I had high hopes for this. Sorry, Simon. Yeah. No. No. Well, I'm. I'm sorry to. Uh, take a dump on those expectations but uh <laughs> sorry flossy yeah. pew flossy pew when is she ever shit or when she's is not she she's ever like comfortably the film. best thing about the film but like the, the the film itself is just it's plodding to the point of just you know like mission impossible for example is, is doing this thing so much better nowadays you know yeah and yeah, it's, it's it, really uh, bad it, i don't know the whole bad, taskmaster yeah. thing is okay but then i don't know I don't know if anyone's seen it yet. I certainly haven't. But isn't Free Guy also available on Disney Plus yes, now? Yes, I also yeah. watched it. Yeah, I haven't seen it yet. But yeah, I've noticed that. That's on my watch list. It's very watchable. Very mm. harmful. <laughs> That's all I'm going to say. But I actually wrote like a big three chunky, chunky paragraph review of it on Letterboxd. In which I started talking about Death Stranding in order to rationalise why Free Guy is bad. So uh, there you go. If if anybody's interested, I'll pop it on our socials. 
<laughs> and you can see how uh, weirdly invested I got in it. I don't know. Odd. Yeah. Um, as well, just a final bit on Disney Plus as well. So we'll probably end up picking up a bit more on our next episode. So, Simon, you'll probably cover a bit more on the London Film Festival. Um, but then next episode will be closer to Disney Plus Day, uh, the 12th of November, where it's a big push to get people to sign up to Disney Plus before Christmas, um, where they're going to be launching like a lot of films, uh, including Shang-Chi and The Legend of the Ten Rings and uh, Jungle Cruise, um, available to watch, which you've previously would have been like a straight to premium listing or as it had been cinema release um, so those are going to be available for you through Disney Plus so it's a big push to get people signed up for that. I'm really looking forward to seeing Shang-Chi um, we'll go through what else is included on uh, the Disney Plus day as well mm-hmm. um, but um, I think that's all everything from my areas covered. Is there anything else from anyone else? I do have something very very important to add. For one thing St. Phil is now on Netflix, which is, oh, yes. which is incredible news, incredible news. <laughs> but in addition to that, if you don't have that's enough uh, Larry David excellence, Kirby Enthusiasm starts in 10 days, season 11, and it starts on British TV on Sky Showcase on Monday the 25th of October at 10.40pm. Lovely. Great news. And I've seen the trailer for the new season, and it's a uh, fictionalised version of Larry David back to his great self. <laughs> Mind you, though, picking up, picking up on Seinfeld, though, have you heard about the whole controversy over uh, the cropping? Um, because, again. Yeah. yeah, so Disney did this when The Simpsons came to Disney+, Plus, where they sort of blew it up to get it to widescreen, but what that does, it adjusts the aspect ratio, so you lose stuff at the top and the bottom. So there's lots of little side gags that were being cropped, so they've done it with uh, Seinfeld, so I wonder if that's going to make Netflix possibly go back to maybe adjust it. I'm, I'm pretty sure Disney did with The Simpsons, and they put it back to the 4 by 3 aspect ratio, I think I haven't gone back to double check, but um, please put it in a 4x3 just so it'll be nicely positioned to how it was originally shot. So What sort of things are missing? The, the Assman registration plate. <laughs> yeah, um, like there's a yeah, there's a couple of episodes where there's something to do with like there's a pothole on the street um, <laughs> that Jerry and George are going on about, and you can't see the pothole; you just see the, the their cropped legs. Um, so yeah, just don't play with aspect ratios; leave them as they were intended. think we'll call that a night for tonight um so we've ended on aspect ratios we'll probably pick up on something else uh on the next episode um but uh from graham thank you very much for listening we look forward to hearing your uh, contributions if there's anything from a wholesome point of view that we've missed let us know through our social channels those are twitter at podcasters instagram at invasion of the podcasters Facebook, Invasion of the Podcasters. We have a Gmail account if you want to get in touch with anything more detailed of podcastersuk at gmail.com. And also we put our reviews up on Letterboxd, uh, letterboxd.com forward slash podcasters. But from Graham, thank you very much and hope to hear, hear from you again soon. Likewise from Simon, night night. Likewise from Scott, see you next time. Two of the most interesting weeks of the year in cinema coming soon. Get your bums on seats, folks. Good night from Laura. Dune. See you soon. Bye.